Welcome to ISCI's Oceanside Chat, A New Light. This podcast was created to inspire, motivate, and provide insight through industry professionals sharing personal stories, career aspirations, and practical advice. Our guest is Emily Ma, head of Food for Good at Google, and lecturer and coach at Stanford School of Engineering. Time to get your feet wet in the business world, and join us down by the water as we have an Oceanside Chat. Season 2, Episode 9, Sustainable Food Supply Chain. Welcome to Oceanside Chat. I'm Helen Wong, the host and editor of the program. Sustainable food supply chain is our topic today. For this episode, in order to unpack the massive food problem, I invited a dear friend, a trained engineer, a creative designer, and an educator at Stanford. She is also passionate about solving food waste and food insecurity. Please join me in welcoming Emily Ma, head for the Food for Good project at Google. Emily, welcome to the Oceanside Chat. Helen, thank you so much for having me here. It's always such a pleasure. So we haven't seen each other in person since COVID. I am very excited to catch up with you So what has become more important to you recently than ever before? COVID was a chance for us all to take a pause. And modern society moves very quickly, Helen. I think you and I both knew that. It was very much like go, 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 especially when we were at Google together. It was all about growth, right? And at the end of the day, I really look at COVID in the last years in some ways as a gift. We got to practice some new ways of working. We learned that actually working from home, we can still be very productive in certain ways. Obviously, I'm not discounting that there are challenges for many individuals working from home. And we learned a lot about climate along the way as well. It's upsetting to me that not only did we have a pandemic, we also faced a lot of social issues in the past two years. Today, you know, is the two-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And then I remember six months into COVID, The wildfires were so bad in California that the sky in San Francisco turned orange for a full day. And there's no question about it at this point. Climate issues, for a long time, it could have been written off. You know, the scientists seeing things that maybe the rest of us didn't see, especially in the last two years, it's become very, very clear, right? Hundred year floods are every year now. The hundred year fires are every year now. And so for me, the biggest shift is awareness and the willingness to embrace the facts. I think pre-pandemic, we were all running so fast that we didn't even have the time to really truly absorb the challenges that we face in our lifetimes, truly. And as a result of that new awareness and in the food world, we saw it in the form of headlines. Like I never have seen headlines in the New York Times saying, farmers plowing their crops back in the ground store shelves are empty, right? Like suddenly people are like, actually the food supply chain, you know, is so reliable for so long they've never paid attention to it, right? And now it's quite brittle in many ways. And the the way we've been operating in the food system hasn't necessarily been good for the climate, good for society, nor good for economics. I think there's an awareness now of climate in particular that is driving so much more action and so much more even willingness to discuss the topics I care about, whether it's food waste or food insecurity or anything else that's sort of adjacent to these topics. And so while 
it causes me great anxiety <laughs> to know that we're not really making as big of a dent as we need to as fast as we can. I'm also comforted that the awareness is 10 times greater than it was pre-pandemic. So you have gifts, right, that come out of the other side. Yeah. I don't know if I ever told you this, but you were my first ever guest speakers that joined event between ISEI, the Supply Chain Institute, and Data Science Institute at UC San Diego. That wow. was February 12, 2021. Oh my God. <laughs> and during that fireside chat, we learned that the food project you led had moved from Alphabet's Secret Lab X to Google. So That's could you right. tell us briefly about the project, the transition, and your most significant learnings in the past 17 months? Yeah, absolutely. So Helen and I had the pleasure of working together many, many years ago on really incredible breakthrough technologies like Google Glass and then various other efforts like Project Loon and, and that was internet balloons and then self-driving cars. And it was an incredible organization to learn how to think about building moonshots. And really in my sort of, other people see it as solving really hard problems, like wicked problems that are systems level problems. And I started this work when I was at X because I was working in our kitchens. So the backstory here is I would go and work on my day job. I would go and spend some time in Google's kitchens from five or 6 a.m. until like eight or 9 a.m. and help cook. And it was just very surprising to me that being a hardware engineer a long time ago, you go into a factory, right? And if the yields are 95%, something's wrong, right? Like you're wasting a lot of like raw materials and you know, you got to get that yield up, right? Because waste is just not okay because we're losing money from that. But when you go in the kitchen, there's a lot of waste. I'm <laughs> like, what do you mean we're throwing away that? Or even my own home, right? When I cook food at home, if I have anything that's excess, I try to freeze it and eat it. Or even when I trim the vegetables, even the ends of the vegetables, I put in broth, right? So I try to reuse everything. But in most cases, things are not reused a second time or they're just tossed in the trash. And so the work really began at X because I was given leeway to really study the problem thoroughly and just realized like there was so much opportunity to tackle food waste. And starting with food waste, I learned that at the same time, within a 10 minute drive of where I was sitting in here in on the peninsula in the Bay Area, there were, you know, a quarter million people who were food insecure. So it was this really interesting juxtaposition of like, wow, you know what, like we wasted that pan of eggs this morning because we overcooked for breakfast for the staff. And then there's like literally people who are down the street, you know, who are going to the food bank because they don't have enough money to buy food. And it was this juxtaposition that made me realize that if I were to dedicate myself to something that was really important, that this was one thing that really deserved attention. And that was where my journey began. In 2021, the last time we spoke, I had just moved back to Google. And the reason for that is very simple. The organization broadly, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, realized that food waste and food insecurity were challenges that were so big and so grand that it can be served well with technology, but technology alone wouldn't solve it, right? And uh, as a technologist, sometimes I'm like, oh, technology can really change the world. It absolutely can. But when it comes to food supply chain challenges, when it comes to the food system, it's about 
understanding culture. It's about working with policymakers. It's about figuring out how to move capital flows to incentivize collaborative behaviors or better sort of treatment of the environment. I had an opportunity to move my team over to Maine Google because there was a recognition that this was a multifaceted interdisciplinary challenge to solve for and that the company had a moral obligation to do whatever it can, even if it makes no money to try to help, right? And I'm humble enough to say that we obviously don't have the solution, but there's a few things that we can do. At Google, when we think about sustainability, we think about three things. We think about what can we do to lead at Google within our own operations? So we have many, many cafes in 170 cities in the world. I think it's on the order of hundreds of cafes where we serve food to 300,000 staff members every day. So that's leading at Google, that's part one. Part two is you know, Google's business. We have advertising and cloud customers who are in the food industry, right? So big companies like Walmart and Kroger and then big CPG companies like Coca-Cola and Unilever, et cetera. They're all our clients. And it actually matters that they have really strong businesses 50 years from now. So why not work on these really big existential questions that they have with them as well, support them. And then the final layer is enabling everyone. So through our free products and platforms, whether that's just Google search or whatnot, like we want to be making sure that we can get people information, accurate information when they need it. So when somebody is food insecure and looking for food and they type in find free food into Google, it is our moral responsibility to make sure that we provide as accurate results as possible within a 15 minute walk of where they're at. And so we get a lot of work to do in all three domains. And not every single one is necessarily going to make profit or even revenue, but we do have a moral responsibility to look at all three domains. Yeah, it looks like Google is in a very unique position by looking into this problem as well as hopefully contributing to a solution to solving this problem. So let's look into this problem. According to USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, most U.S. households have consistent, dependable access to enough food for active, healthy living. So they are food secure. However, some households experience food insecurity at times during the year. So Emily, could you explain to us what food security means to individual families and communities? Absolutely. So food security means that without distress, every day when you want to eat, or maybe there's people who maybe eat every other day, I, I'm not going to assume anything. When you want to eat, you should have food access, right? And then access to nutritious food. So oftentimes food insecurity is a bit of a misnomer because we're looking at nutritional security, right? So we're not just talking about calories anymore because you can make up 2000 calories in many different ways. I can eat 2000 calories worth of Cheetos, right? <laughs> but that's maybe not so good for me <laughs> and my yeah. mental health and my physical health, right? So it means that when an individual and a family has nutritional security, it means that they have access to a broad range of foods when they need it, when they want to eat, and it, it keeps them healthy mentally and physically. You're correct in differentiating between food insecurity and hunger. Hunger, we see in a lot of developing countries, the UN Secretary General had pointed this out, hunger and malnutrition at that level is very different. It literally is not getting enough calories into the body on a very regular basis. 
food insecurity, there's about 40 to 47 million people in the United States who have food insecurity. And oftentimes that is caused by other challenges in their day-to-day -day lives. So oftentimes when somebody becomes unemployed because of layoffs, um, they choose to pay rent rather than to buy food. I have met people who have literally chosen to forego eating for Wi-Fi for various reasons, right? So for whatever reason, um, there are individuals who become food insecure, who become clients of food banks and pantries all across the country because we live in a capitalistic society, right? You know, we the bills are due and then one has to make a choice in terms of what bills to pay and what bills not to pay, right? So, you know, another trade-off people will make is do I pay for electricity or do I pay for food, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's another layer is like, do I feed my children first before I feed myself? And so it's an incredibly challenging and sensitive topic because there's a lot of cultural aspects of it. And there's also a lot of emotional aspects to it. There's a lot of dignity and shame elements to that question. And so there are people who will just not even ask for help because culturally they don't feel like they're, it's their right to do so. And so I'd be surprised too, I'll, I'll leave you with one thought. Um, when I started studying this, I was surprised at how many college students are food insecure. And I realized that it was part of our responsibility too to help that segment and get the word out that there is food to be accessed and where it is. And so it touches everyone. It touches people in the most unlikeliest of places. We asked a question earlier to the audience. Do you know how many percent of Californians experience food insecurity? We have about 52% answered 20% and 35% voted 10% and 13% thinking about 5%. So really to understand these problems, we don't have to look far. And I'd like to share some stats I researched. So according to Feeding America's 2019 data, 10.2% of Californians, more than 4 million people, which include 1.2 million children experienced food insecurity. And nationwide, 10.9% of Americans, more than 35 million, including 10.7 million children, suffered food insecurity. And furthermore, a 20% increase is estimated at the impact of coronavirus on food insecurity in 2021. And if the California and U.S. situation are difficult to hear, the U.N. also indicated that the number of severely food insecure people globally has doubled in just two years. And the famine conditions increased more than five times since 2016. Furthermore, the global food prices has risen by nearly one-third in the past year and fertilized by more than half and oil price by almost two thirds. So Emily, in your opinion, what triggered the greatest global food insecurity crisis of our time? Oh gosh, too many things. We spoke about the pandemic already, right? A lot of people who are essential workers, honestly, in our grocery stores and our food supply chain, even in our food banks and pantries, and to some extent, even in our fields, could not actually do their job because of coronavirus, right? Social distancing, but also many of them did get sick. Beyond that, I'm very concerned with the war in Ukraine. We have so many statistics that we can pull up about Ukraine and Russia and their participation in the global food system. Ukraine and Russia are 
major exporters of oil, of wheat, of basic commodities that are crucial to our global food system. And the fact that they are currently not functioning the way they normally would. And then you overlay on top of that the climate issues that we're having. We're seeing in China, for example, this year, likely a much lower yield on wheat and other commodities because of late rains, because of you know, whether that's hotter than normal on the wrong times of year. It's a confluence of a number of variables that are coming together, unfortunately, all at the right time. It breaks my heart when I read about Ukraine and how there is still much of last year's harvest still sitting in the silos and they can't get it out because all of the port cities are under siege, right? And so there's only one or two land ports currently open in Ukraine. And so even the farmers farmed a great bumper crop this year, they cannot store it because they need to get rid of last year's harvest before they put this year's harvest in there. So it is literally a confluence of variables causing all of these disruptions that have a ripple effect upwards and downwards in our supply chains. So it's incredibly disheartening. I spent a lot of time worrying about it and thinking about what does this mean? And yet, I'll be really honest, I think this is not necessarily an opportunity, but it's a realization that our current way of being consumers of food in the current food system isn't working anymore. And you know, maybe just a couple of thoughts on that. And, and you know, all of you, please challenge me. Um, yeah, I'm an educator too, so I like to be challenged. I think as Americans and, and Canadians and Canadians are the same way, like we expect perfect food in our grocery stores all the time year round. And I remember a time, long time ago, when the grocery store was only open from nine till six, right? And only Mondays to Fridays, right? Because my pastor, or, you know, the community would like take Sundays off, right? We expect things all the time, every day now, before we even think about it. I think there's a joke from like some Amazon um, about Amazon Air. Like before you even think about it, they would send a drone and drop it into your hand. <laughs> I think that's unrealistic. The food system just doesn't that work that way. So when I think about like solutions for some of the incredible disruptions that we're seeing, it's actually not super fancy. It's actually going back to how my mom and dad and my grandfather and grandmother had lived, right? Like they ate seasonally. We're yeah. not going to be eating like dark leafy greens in the summer because that wasn't growing in the summer. They eat whatever was growing in the summer. They eat snow peas in the summer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they didn't expect to have access all the time, right? But they also didn't expect variety. I, I, I think it's actually quite funny how like now on DoorDash, I can order whatever want I want from whatever cuisine with like three clicks. So I'm used to that. But like long time ago, like my mom and dad, when they were in college, they make one giant pot of soup. And then that's what they ate for 10 meals for the next five days. And that was okay. And then the next week they do something different. And I think we are so, as consumers, we are so, in some ways drunk on convenience and variety and every day, all the time and real time that we've forgotten that there are consequences of all of us participating in a world that really caters to all of our whims. And so I actually really appreciated the pandemic because it made me realize, actually, I literally am eating through the same pot of vegetable chili that has been sitting around since like last Friday, right? And it's perfectly (laughs) fine, right? It's so delicious. I add some fresh herbs on it every day. And maybe today I added cheese. Yesterday I didn't, right? Like perfectly fine. 
I think the pandemic has helped us understand like maybe we don't need all this variety. Maybe we don't need all this convenience. Maybe we can cook for ourselves. Maybe we can eat seasonally and not have to expect to have certain vegetables year round. And, and that's okay. I'm simultaneously very sad and also very optimistic about the future. As a supply chain person, I look into what's the problem, how big the problem is, how do we solve it? I think add on everything you just mentioned about climate, about COVID, about the Ukraine and the Russia area. There's another thing on top of that was the fertilizer that people are talking about. Apparently, between Russia and Belarus, they're combined about 40% of an key ingredient for fertilizer. So now farmers either cannot afford to bring fertilizer to the farm, or even if they could, the fertilizer are not available to them. As much as we appreciate organic, the majority of the world still need that chemical fertilizer to triple the global grain production, which is you know, critical to feed all the growth of the human beings. So that's the problem side. Again, as a supply chain profession, our logical to solving a shortage problem, which we do on a daily basis, goes this way. Okay, Emily. On the one hand, we try to increase supply by producing more. But in this particular case, it seems difficult and complicated to increase supply in the foreseeable future due to challenges beyond industry control, including the pandemic, the extreme weather, the warfare, and the geopolitical conflicts and the list going on. But on the other hand, we try to reduce waste by improving the utilization of limited supply. So Emily, with your help, I would like to pivot to the food waste and seek opportunities to combat food crisis. We have another two poll questions. Right? The first one is, do you know how many percent of food in the United States are wasted? It's a single choice. So we have 76% answered 40% wasted. About 14% answered 10% wasted, and 10% answered about 50% are wasted. And then the second question is, do you know how much food America throws out per person per year? So 33% thinking 200 pounds, 29% thinking 400 pounds, and then 29% also thinking 100 pounds, and then last 10% thinking 50 pounds. So we will you know, reveal the answer throughout the rest of the conversation. But just to understand what's at the stake, according to the Natural Resources Defense Council, up to 40% of the food in the United States is never eaten. So households toss link vegetables. People are confused about food data labels, whether you expire by good by what day, it's very confusing to consumers. And the restaurants often serve massive portion and then trash the leftovers. And the grocery stores, right, overstock their shelves to maintain an image of abundance. Farmers are unable to self-produce that doesn't look perfect, to your earlier point. We need a perfect apple, right, in the supermarket. And at the same time, one out of eight Americans struggle to put food on the table. Google co-founder Larry Page once said, people are starving in the world not because we don't have enough food. It's because we're not yet organized to solve that problem. So Emily, can we solve the problem? And what can industry and the company do about it? I'll be very, very humble. This is not being me being pessimistic. I don't think we can solve the problem entirely, but we can make it much better. <laughs> How about that? So as you pointed out, there's this great dichotomy, right? For those of you who said 40% of food in the United States is wasted, you win. Well done. 
And at the same time, we have somewhere between 10 and 20% food insecurity, depending on where you're in this country. Total like mismatch, right? Like how is this possible? And then for me, it actually starts by leading at Google. And the part that I'm very excited about is our founder, Larry Page, knew this long time ago. As Helen had noted, hunger is not the result of not having enough food. It's a distribution problem. It's actually connecting that food to people. So in as much as I work a lot with industry partners, whether that's Kroger or Albertsons or Compass Group, the largest food service company in the world, we got to start with ourselves, right? Um, we got to make sure that we're doing the right things. Otherwise, it would seem very hypocritical, honestly. And so a lot of the food waste analysis and understanding in Google's own operations has been ongoing for almost a decade. So we started in 2014 measuring our own food waste and really working with a company called LeanPath. We had a LeanPath machine and a dashboard in the back of every kitchen. So we would very, very thoughtfully measure any trim waste and any excess overproduction at the end of every day. So that at least, you know, what you measure is what you're going to work on, right? If you don't measure it, you don't know. And so over those years, we made a lot of progress. So between 2014 and 2022, eight years, we saved over 10 million pounds of food by doing things like minimizing how much we were overproducing when we knew that, for example, cooking eggs for 500 people didn't make sense. We're only going to cook enough for 250 and then like cook more if needed. And then other things like this sounds really silly, but like the way you trim a strawberry matters. I didn't know this because a long time ago I go in there and I take the strawberry and I just cut off the top and then get rid of the leafy bits, right? The really good chef will go in and actually cone out the strawberry because if you do that with like 10,000 strawberries, that's a lot of strawberries that you're throwing out. Even just culinary um, efforts to reduce our food waste, our trim waste, were, were underway. Um, so we ended up in March of this year actually stepping up even further as a company. We're a global company. We're in 56 countries. We have 170 cities in the portfolio. We said, you know what, given the sustainable development goals, 12.3 around reducing food waste by 50% by 2030, we are going to publicly commit to two goals because we believe it's actually our moral responsibility to do so. And as a result of publicly committing to these goals, we will then also inspire our food service partners and our suppliers upstream and downstream to do the same. And so a lot of them have been actually ahead of us. So Compass Group had food waste goals since 2017. We were kind of like dragging our feet a little bit about being more public about our work. So the two goals that we've decided are actually really important. And, and you're like, why can't food waste be a single goal? It's actually twofold because of how the food supply chain works. So goal number one is to reduce our food waste by 50% per Googler, per individual staff member by 2025. That's a simple one, just reducing it, right? So how do we work uh, across the supply chain with our users in every single node to reduce. The second one is a little bit more unknown or sometimes misunderstood, right? It's not okay just to reduce the food waste. It actually matters where the food waste goes. Any remaining food waste, if it ends up in landfill, is going to be 20 times worse <laughs> than any other place that lands, right? So what happens is when food waste, because it's organic content, ends up in landfill, and if it undergoes anaerobic digestion, it produces methane gas. Methane gas is 20 times worse than carbon dioxide for the environment. And so 
we want to avoid sending anything to landfills. So the first one is a reduction goal. The second goal is a diversion goal. By 2025, we will divert 100% of any remaining food waste away from landfill. Compost is fine. Anaerobic digestion is fine. Like we want to turn to energy. We can, and even better if we can move it to people who can eat it or we can turn it into animal feed. Any option other than landfill is very important if we're really thinking through the climate impacts of this. I want to go back to 10 million for a second. So I know a lot of people are like, ah, 10 million pounds of food, hard to imagine how much food that is. Firstly, it's a lot, I mean, it, it's a lot of money, right? So, you know, the way the Feeding America and other organizations calculate it is for every pound of food, it's about $1.50, right? So you can think of that as like, we just toss $15 million into the trash can, right? Then there's the environmental impact. 10 million pounds of food is equivalent to 25,000 metric carbon tons. And so then you're like, okay, what is 25,000 like carbon tons, right? That is equivalent to 5,000 cars driving on the streets constantly for a year, right? It's like, you know, 5,000 cars just fuming carbon dioxide. It is also equivalent to over a billion gallons of water. A billion gallons of water, like what does it mean by billion gallons of water? Imagine if every single person in the top five cities in the United States all took a bath at the same time. You combine New York, like the Bay Area, Chicago, Houston, I don't remember, the Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Everyone who lived in those cities took a bath at the same time. That's a billion gallons of water. Mm-hmm. So the impact of waste is really significant. There's a materiality to not just food waste, but any waste. So, you know, I find it super interesting when we talk about carbon, like that it's sometimes we don't tie it back to materiality. And I think food waste is fascinating and a really valuable area to work in. Again, going back to opportunity, right? Like Mm -hmm. if Helen and I were working on a injection molding like lineup, right? Like we're probably cutting out most of the waste already, right? We probably figured out how to like return any scrap back into the system. Like 60% yield, it's not acceptable word. Any for like a 99.9%, if not a hundred percent, right? We want like zero waste, you know? So, but when it comes to food, I guess, you know, to your point, if you cannot measure it, people don't understand what that really means. I mean, it doesn't really going to impact them a lot, you know? So that's very, very interesting. I like all the examples that you've given us because that's gave us a very clear picture in terms of how bad the problem is how big the opportunity is, right? On the other hand. So according to US Environmental Protection Agent, right, 10% of the nation's greenhouse gas emission come from agriculture. So if you're thinking about it, you waste anything, right? From sea to table, you also contributing to make the problem even worse. I also like to kind of give the answer to the earlier poll questions. According to the food system, America throws out more than 400 pounds of food per person per year, 400 pounds. Can you imagine that? And when that food is wasted, so are the resources that goes into producing it, right? Including 21% of fresh water used by the US agriculture industry. And wasted food also generate climate change pollution equivalent to 37 million cars per year. So if we could redirect just one third of the food that we now toss to people in need, it would be more than enough to cover unmet food need across the country. 
So Emily, I wonder, Google is a technology company, and I know you're also trying to utilize technology to solve the problem. Could you give us some examples in terms of what that could look like? Yeah, absolutely. We've looked, again, very humbly up and down the entire stack when it comes to tech. In the early days, two examples of the work that we were doing when I was at Google X included using computer vision to really try to identify what was going into our compost bins so that you can take, by the way, most of the staff members in the kitchens work like a really long shift. And then so by the end of the day to manually enter information, is like a lot of work. And so again, being very user-centered, like how can we take this task off of their hands? How can we use what we know about artificial intelligence to simply identify? That's possible, but that doesn't actually fully close the loop. The second thing we were looking at is how do we better match supply and demand, right? And uh, the food industry is so interesting to me because when I go back to some of the most difficult computer science problems that we're looking to solve for, there's a traveling salesman problem. In what order do you pick things up and drop things off? And then there's the knapsack problem is if you're trying to dig out $5.23 from your backpack and it's just full of coins, like you could do that in many different combinations. And that's about how do you fill a truck with all of these different boxes and items in the most efficient manner. At the end of the day, I'll be really honest, after doing a lot of work in the space, meeting with dozens and dozens of other companies that are doing this work, we actually stepped back and stepped back again. Step back number one was we said, wow, you know what? Lots of different players in this world are already operating and working together. Our role maybe should be simply making that information visible, right? Meaning that's very good to say that. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, If there's surplus food, how can we immediately make it seen on you know the internet so that many different players can come and basically say hey I, i'm going to take this or like hey i don't need it right now hey second group third group fourth group fifth priority can go and can take us this surplus food then we realize actually you know it's not even making it visible it literally is going down to what i think as assembly code it's like having common standards of even how to describe our food doesn't exist mm-hmm. so remember like 25 years ago HTML didn't exist. Okay, maybe 30 years ago. HTML didn't exist. The internet couldn't actually like work together. And then a large group of folks from many different parts of the world came together and said, let's figure out a markup language that we can all agree on. And then that will allow for the interconnectivity of all of our different sites and, and information being shared. And that flourished. Same thing with you know the Android operating system, right? Like we come together and have an open alliance around how we want to label things, how we want to describe things. That starts to unlock everybody's resources and cycles. And so in terms of tech at this point, my team is very much spending a lot of time on understanding what are the open source standards and tools that need to be in place to enable the hundreds of thousands of organizations that are doing food recovery and hunger relief to really work together and communicate together and play their role much more effectively. And so tech can come in many ways. It can be very fancy computer vision, AI, ML, but it can also be done at the assembly code level. And we want to step in and help in the right ways with the ecosystem to really help it thrive. It sounds like the data might be out there, but they're not organized. They're not consistent. There's no standard, right? So it makes uh, like more advanced technology, like machine learning, so much more difficult because we haven't really organized. This actually reminded me about what Larry said again, you know, because we're not organized to solve this problem. So the step one might be, how can we organize ourselves in a way that data actually become high quality and meaningful, right? That can be actually utilized to solve the problem. That's very interesting. 
So as a tradition of our program, I hope to build an intellectual bridge between the current and the future generations. Einstein said, any intelligent fool can make things bigger and more complex. It takes a touch of genius and a lot of courage to move in the opposite direction. So Emily, how would you paint a picture of sustainable food supply chain by giving it a new perspective? This is credit to Andrew Zimmern, who is an incredible chef and writer and anthropologist in his own way. He described the food supply chain and the food system as a Mobius strip. And so if you don't know what a Mobius strip is, you can cut a piece of paper and then flip one side and then tape it together. So regardless of where you start, even the twists and turns, you'll always end up back in the same place, even though it's a very complex mm. um, strip of paper. And so the reason why I love that analogy so much for the food supply chain is because you can start in food waste and then you can end up going back upstream into upcycled foods and what suppliers are doing in processing plants and farmers. And then you could start with farmers and you could end up in a completely different part of the supply chain trying to understand labor and immigration. And then if you start with immigration and labor, you might end up actually coming back around and looking at food insecurity because it turns out that a lot of, actually it's ironic, but like a lot of the folks who are essential to our food system running are also food insecure because they live in, they might grow a lot of food, but all the food leaves and then they're stuck with a food swamp where only fast food is accessible to them. So when I think about the food supply chain and the complexities of the food system, the Mobius strip really sticks with me as the analogy. Wow. That reminded me about circle of life. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. So Emily, you know, giving you that homework, actually come up with an analogy, which I give to every guest speakers. I also come up with one trying to contribute and hopefully others will appreciate as well. So here comes my analogy. Everyone is worried about 8.3% inflation rate, which is at 40-year high. But have you ever thought of the 40% of wasted food? It mm. is equivalent to five times the worst inflation rate. As consumers, you can do nothing about inflation, but you can help reduce food waste and save yourself 40 cents of every dollar spent on food. I love it so much. I just thought that everybody, you know, complaining about inflation rate, and when you open up TV, everybody's talking about how bad that problem is. But yeah, you know, if you're really thinking about every dollar you spend on food, you actually waste 40%. So 40 cents, you throw it to trash can. Will you literally do that if you have 40 cents in your hands? And by the way, $1, you cannot really buy that much, right? Let's see, $100. Can you just literally throw $40 to the trash can? It's crazy. Yeah, so I, I thought that might, you know, work for, for everybody when they really start thinking about this problem. Helen, I have one more thing to share then. Yeah. I want to share a link. For those of you who are looking to make the most of your food at home, my very, very good friend, Michael Kahn, who is the head of culinary development for Google, a month ago shared a number of recipes for what he does with leftovers or, you know, sometimes you're like, what do I do with the extra rinds of the watermelon? You can actually eat the watermelon rind if you pickle it in the right way. So mm. and he shared a few of his favorite recipes there. And so I, I hope that helps, especially when you're at home in your kitchens, thinking through what's in my refrigerator today and what can I do with it? Be creative, right? Make your own dish. Thanks for sharing that. 
We got a question from audience. This might be a chicken or egg question, but on an individual basis, do you think it's more effective to lobby for changes on a national level, or it often feels like, despite making changes, we still hear about how bad the food security crisis is? That's a great question, Tiffany. Thank you so much. So it's a challenging one. I don't even know if it's chicken or egg or if it's a sunny side up、uh, fried egg question at this point. <laughs>、uh, so I think each and every one of us can take personal responsibility, and and it might not have a ripple effect. But I spend a lot of time sharing with my friends who come over for dinner, and they're like always surprised that I pickled like strawberries, and they're like, "What? You can pickle strawberries?" I'm like, "Yeah, they were a little bit mushy. I didn't actually. I don't tell them that. But then they're like, 'These are delicious. I never knew this was possible.' So I think you can have a small ripple effect, even if it doesn't feel like food insecurity has been solved. You can still have a small ripple effect at the local level through your joy and excitement about this topic. I do work at policy. I've spent time with the White House quietly. I've spent time with state legislators, and I, I do a lot of work helping partners that we have in the world. We had two friends testify last year, or no, not last year, last week in Congress, and we were lobbying to get part of the Build Back Better plan to include composting funding into municipalities. So I think we can operate at all these different levels. At the end of the day, COVID did cause Food insecurity to rise, but again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, the awareness is significantly greater, which means that while we went backwards five steps, I think if we have a very special moment in time right now to go forward ten steps, and before the pandemic, we wouldn't have been able to go forward ten steps so quickly. Yeah. So here's a follow-up question. You know, our audience asks great questions. So in addition, right, to the awareness that we have to drive for consumers, and in addition to some of the technology, latest and the best we can put in this problem, can you think of any other way that could change the consumer behavior in a more impactful way? There is a book called the Waste-Free Kitchen Handbook that. I'm hoping to put out and、um, sort of really just remind people it exists. My friend Dana Gunders wrote it, and she was actually the writer of the seminal paper that Helen had mentioned earlier from the NRDC. She wrote that ten years ago. So, as consumers,、um, we may not be able to go to our grocery store and change how they buy food, but we can make choices, right? We can choose to buy our food from farmers markets, or we can choose to buy directly from farmers who have CSA boxes. We can—it's our vote, right? Our dollars. We can vote with our dollars. And then behind the scenes, going back to the waste-free kitchen handbook. Actually, my friends in food safety hate it when I say this. Your body is the most tuned sensor to understand what is good to eat and what's not good to eat. So, reading a label is actually worse than if you just tasted it. And it turns out if you just ignore the label, you smell the milk, or you taste the bit a little bit of cheese, right? You're probably going to be fine. I can't change policies around Best Buy labels or sell-by labels, but I can encourage people to trust themselves. And the truth of the matter is, once in a while, you're going to get a stomach ache, right? But actually, your body learns. This is the most sophisticated AI. Your body is incredibly good at learning. And next time around, your your body's going to be stronger, right?、Mm-hmm. If you eat something. That makes you uncomfortable just temporarily. We are unbelievably resilient and unbelievably sophisticated systems, and so for consumers to understand that, I think we've yielded so much of our eating behaviors to 
information on the internet or on labels that we've forgotten to learn from our own bodies. Mm -hmm. We have an interesting question also about the potential for blockchain technology. Do you have anything to comment on that? That's, that's a wonderful question. Blockchain has been around for quite some time. And I believe in 2017, IBM did a lot of work with various organizations uh, to try to get more information onto a food supply blockchain. And I remember Frankie Annis, who was the former VP at Walmart responsible for food safety. And then currently, I believe he's at the FDA overseeing food safety. It, it does have a big impact. So he used to say, if there was a recall, a couple of years ago, there was a big recall on this, you know, from Mexico. And then what happened was they had to shut down the lettuce imports from Mexico for like a week. That meant $40 million worth of lettuce went to waste because they couldn't pinpoint where the issue was, right? Where the E. coli, it was an E. coli outbreak. Blockchain helped to reduce that time significantly to figure out which at least city it was in. So they didn't have to shut down an entire country's worth of imports. And so there's absolute value in the blockchain reducing food waste. And in my mind, it's mainly upstream. It's mainly upstream disruptions, right? So from supplier to potentially processor to consumer, right? But less so blockchain for consumer downstream. Yeah. We run out of time. We actually have more questions in the audience. But Emily, I want to give you time to share your final thoughts or one thing that you'd like our audience to remember. Oh, gosh. Thank you, Helen. You're all incredibly lucky to have Helen as a professor. <laughs> she is encouraging you to exercise agency and to practice stepping up where you can and when you can, whether that's in your personal life, in your professional life, as a community member, whether that's in your city, in your state, or in the nation. And I encourage you to take full opportunity of that. I think each and every one of us has the opportunity, but sometimes we don't step up because we're worried about what other people will think, worried about what our bosses might think. And the way we learn is by trying. And Helen is creating an environment and the sandbox for you to do that. So I hope you consider that, whether it's on this topic or any other topic that she shared with you in the last eight episodes. Oh, that's a surprise. I did not expect that, Emily, on this topic. <laughs> Thank you so much for your kind words. I, I agree with you. I think everyone else can do more. So I want our audience to remember the largest source of food waste is people in their own homes. So we waste more than a grocery store, restaurants, and any other single part of the supply chain. And everybody can be the change agent to solve the food waste problem. So Emily, thank you so much for your leadership, your passion, your tireless efforts, and inspiration in solving the food waste and food insecurity problems. And I hope our conversation leads to many more discussion about a sustainable food supply chain whether in the corporate boardroom or at the dinner table with every generation. And thank you everyone for attending our live webinar and listening to our podcast. And we look forward to seeing you again in two weeks. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Oceanside Chat. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you liked it, please share this podcast and stay tuned for our next episode. 
We'll see you later.